Well, I have been spending some time praying about uh, what scriptures we should be listening to in this season of our life together. And uh, one of the books that I've just had a strong impression that we should sit with for a little bit is the book of Ruth. And so we'll spend four weeks studying this wonderful book this summer. So let's uh, listen for what the Spirit might say to our church through the book of Ruth. The first five verses provide the setting where the story takes place. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man in Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Our story takes place in the time when the judges ruled. So it's a time when Israel is in the promised land, but there are no kings yet. The book of Judges says it was kind of a wild west time, very dangerous, very primitive. Uh, Naomi's from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem was the bread basket for Jerusalem. And yet Israel is in a famine and ironically, the pagan land of Moab, the much hated enemy of Israel, is where the food is. And this is the first reversal of expectation that we see in this book. And we'll see these again and again and again, where it's not the way it's supposed to be. Because remember, Israel was supposed to be the land of milk and honey, not Moab. So already we're kind of unsettled in the first verses, uh, Naomi's husband is named Elimelech. It means, my God is king. And he, he dies very early in the story. But his name reminds us that God is king and involved in the events of the story and protecting and guiding the family even when they're vulnerable. And so Naomi and her husband and two sons leave Israel because of the famine. They travel to Moab to find work and food. The kingdom of Moab is uh, called Jordan today. It's a land of high plateaus and deep gorges. It's on the east side of the Red Sea. A friend of mine who grew up in Lebanon, I said, how long would it take to walk there from Bethlehem uh, to, to a, a city on a, on a ridge? And he said, take about, it's about 50 miles because you have to go up around the Dead Sea and then back down, and it's quite hilly. And a key to this story is keeping in mind that the Israelites hated the Moabites. One reason was is they thought they were unfilthy and that they were better than them. They traced that back to a story in Genesis where Lot 
uh, had an incestuous relationship and gave birth to a daughter, and that's sort of the ancestor story of Moab. Then there were some times when the people of Israel would go over and worship Moab's gods. Um, Israelites saw the Moabites as spiritually unclean, morally inferior, and worthy of judgment. And yet, the Hebrew family finds food in Moab. Naomi's sons take Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. Both the husbands die. And so get a feel for just how bleak the opening of our little story is in a very patriarchal country and culture. If you are a widow, you have very little means of support. And this is a little band of widows, refugees, migrant workers. And they're from culturally different ethnic groups that hate each other. Now, we can assume that God is in the background. And here's what I want us to think about a little bit. God has Naomi and her family leave the familiar security of their home and move into a neighborhood that feels very scary to them. And what we find in the next three chapters is that this uncomfortable, jarring move puts them in a position to be blessed by God and join him in his healing work. And had they stayed home, they probably would have died. And this is a theme in Scripture. God often calls his people to leave the comfort of home and move into a new neighborhood. And that can be true spiritually, physically. It might be going on in your life tonight. God tells Abraham, leave your home. Go to the land where I'll show you. God calls Israel out of their home in Egypt into the wilderness. Jesus, heading north to Galilee, goes through Samaria rather than staying in his safe homeland, which opens up his ministry to the Samaritans. The first nine chapters of the book of Acts tell us that Israel, the Israelites, the Israeli believers would not leave Jerusalem. They wouldn't leave home until persecution came and the mission to the world began. And of course, Jesus leaves his heavenly home to move into, to incarnate into the neighborhood of earth. Now, where are you going with this? Okay. We often think, or at least I often think about discipleship, the way we follow Jesus as a very personal thing, a very interior thing. Uh, A good disciple, when you think, what do you think of when you, a good disciple is someone who, um, my default is um, has a quiet time, um, reads their Bible, uh, is morally pure, loves their family well. That's all true. But we also find in the Bible something we might call public discipleship. A way of following Jesus that shapes the way we live in the world. There's even a geographic dimension to discipleship. In other words, if you follow Jesus, it will actually shape 
your decisions about where you live and where you shop and where you worship, where you send your kids to school. I'm not saying there's one right answer, but this will become a part of your conscious reflection as a disciple. Now, rabbis in the Middle Ages wrote commentaries on the Hebrew Bible. It was called the Midrash. And the rabbis, at this point of the book of Ruth, condemned Naomi, said she never should have left the promised land. And the reason why her husband and sons died was because she dared to go to Moab. And that was a common understanding of the story. And even today, many religious people still think that way. Don't ever leave the bubble of the faith community. It's too dangerous. Those people will destroy you. But with the benefit of the New Testament, we see that leaving the bubble, leaving home, moving into places that might not feel safe is actually the way of discipleship. Friday afternoon, I was talking with Dave and Kate Crouch. They were setting up for a, a women's ministry gathering. It was just uh, there were 40 folks showed up and learned all sorts of different ways to, to connect. And they were here setting up and we got to talking. And they live in Farragut. For some reason, they've been drawn to downtown to this church. And to make a long story short, they felt led by God recently to, to buy a house on Jefferson Avenue, which is a few blocks away. They're suburban folk, they said. This is kind of new for them. They're not sure why God has them do this, but they feel like something's up. And they said as they're working in the yard, they're meeting all sorts of neighbors in a way that they'd never met in the place where they normally live. And all sorts of conversations are happening and questions are being raised. And they're just sensing that God is doing something. And part of it's because they got out of the comfort of their subdivision and bought a home in a neighborhood that's kind of scary to them. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. That's how they feel. And God's doing something. Have you noticed that the way Knoxville is designed keeps us from engaging people of different neighborhoods and different classes? Have you noticed just by the way our interstates are designed, you could spend your whole life and not even know there was an East Knoxville. I'm not sure that was a malevolent plan. There are reasons for it, but it's a reality. So one of the things that I want you to kind of play with is could part of the life of discipleship be adjusting your life to put you in relationship with people who are different than yourself? Could that be part of the way of, could that be part of the message of Ruth that this story could have taken place within Israel, but it, it takes place in a scary neighborhood. At least it starts there. This fall, Justin Phillips, Mary Terry, and Reverend uh, Kevin Du Bois are teaching a class called Neighbor Well, Moving Toward Missional Justice Through Jesus. It starts in September. Just real quickly, I think 
Mary and Justin, would you just stand up real quickly? If you, yeah, just if you're interested in that class, just um, talk to them. We'll have a little, it'll be in the newsletter. Well, at the end, Reverend Du Bois is going to lead a half-day tour of Knoxville. It'll be on November 13th. You can take the tour even if you miss the class. And he, he's going to help you learn about the racial history of our city. And you're going to learn about housing and education and food on the east side of town. Taking a, a tour like that is a wonderful way to start to explore uh, other parts of our community, other neighborhoods. It might be something I'd really encourage you to do. Now, this idea of geographic discipleship, of that, that sometimes God calls us to leave home to be a part of his plan, is, is kind of risky, can create a lot of tension. Sandy and I, uh, I remember the Gonzaleses moved into Mechanicsville and 30 years ago, 28 25, and we had another friend move into the house right next to Matt's, and we got a realtor, and we, we, we got really close to put an offer on a house, and we prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it, just never got peace that we were supposed to move into that neighborhood. Actually, it was real challenging in our marriage. We, we had to really work through some things. And then we decided actually God was calling us to get out of our comfort zone in other ways. So there's lots of ways to do this. But when you open yourself up to leaving the promised land, sometimes it takes a famine to get you to do it. It can get kind of scary, but it's kind of exciting too. Doug and Mary Terry have been on a journey like this. And when I share a story, I'm not saying and that's the holy way. And if you don't do it their way, you're not holy. But I've been walking with them for a long time. And this story's been pretty powerful and kind of hard. And I, I asked Mary to just describe it in a text. And she said, in 2012, when we became parents to a black son, we started looking at our immediate environment, church, community, neighborhood, through the lens of being a mixed race family. We read a lot for about a year, and then we realized that we could read for the rest of our lives and not understand what it meant to be black in America, particularly in Knoxville. So we moved, and we decided we all needed a community where one of us wasn't the outstanding minority all the time. And we all needed a neighborhood where we could learn from neighbors and friends about social implications of race. We all needed that community. And then we were texting back and forth, and, and she was talking about, uh, I said, be honest, what, what was the hardest part about it? And, and we, she, she said, be careful how you say this, because I don't want it to be misinterpreted, but it's okay to say it. And I think this is the rawness of it, and so I, I'm going to share it. Um, she said, one of the biggest challenges is the first day they went to the school where their little boy was going to go, and it was very different than the suburban school where he had been registered for before and she felt fear she loves urban schools volunteers in urban schools is in a PhD program to serve urban schools she values urban schools but she felt fear and she said all my life I was raised to believe that having good schools and safe housing was the number one priority for a white Christian mother 
And now I felt like I was going against those values in order to follow God's call in our life. It can be tough trying to sort all. And there's not a right or wrong answer. We're not saying that's the way to do it. But I think this is part of the life of discipleship. Often it means you, you have to get out of where you are comfortable. Well, the next part of the story, I won't read all of it to you. You may be familiar with this story, but the sons die and Ruth goes uh, to Naomi and Orpah, the other daughter, goes to Naomi and, Naomi and they're deciding what are we going to do next. And Ruth is just so loving and kind to her, but Naomi is just defeated. She's an older woman. And, and she has a couple tragic lines. And then she says, it's exceedingly bitter to me because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then she says, you go back home, both of you. I'm done. And Orpah goes home, which was a valid choice. Ruth uh, has this beautiful poetic response that I've gotten to preach at many weddings. I wish Sean and Jeanetta Maurer were here August 25th, 2012. This was the text at their wedding. If you see them next week, uh, thank them. I always write the name of the couple in my Bible when I marry them and pray for them when I read it again. Uh, Josh and Amelia Peterson use this text too. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw she was determined to go, she said, no more. You remember when we were talking about reversal of expectations? If you were a Hebrew reader of this story, you would find this very disturbing. Because the hero, the example of faith, is not Naomi, the Hebrew widow, it's Ruth. Naomi, for whatever reason, is just so beat up, she has no more hope, no more faith, she's done. Ruth, who is from a despised people who were thought to be unclean and impure, actually becomes the exemplar of faithfulness, loving an older person well, which is a very important biblical virtue, choosing to follow Ruth's God, or Naomi's God, so converting to the God of Israel, and she becomes the example of faith. Now, Jesus will often tell stories like this, and he will just shock his audience by making Heroes out of despised outsiders. Uh, Jesus heals 10 lepers. Only one of them comes back and says thank you as a Samaritan, the bad guy. A Canaanite woman earnestly pleads to Jesus to heal her daughter. Jesus does after a dialogue. Jesus says, great is your faith. A Roman military officer asks Jesus to heal his son. He says Jesus can do anything. Jesus heals the boy says, truly, I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. <laughs> Jesus tells the famous Good Samaritan story to illustrate what it looks like to love your neighbor. 
And the Samaritan, the outsider, shows us what it looks like to have compassion. Now, these stories aren't in here for our entertainment, right? The stories in the Bible are there to form us morally and spiritually. Why is the book of Ruth in the Bible? Well, what's happening here is the story is exposing our sinful human tendency to judge and hate and fear outsiders. That's the work that this story is providing. A famous psychological experiment suggests that this tendency to just distrust outsiders, to fear the other, is hardwired into the human race. You may have heard of it. In the summer of 1954, a group of fifth grade boys were invited to spend several weeks together at a summer camp, and they did not know they were the subjects of an experiment. And the boys spent the first week hiking, fishing, canoeing, bonding as campers. At the end of the week, the campers were told that another group of boys was staying in another camp not far away. And the other camp was told the same thing. A rivalry began immediately. The group's chosen name, the Eagles and the Rattlers. Quickly, one group claimed the baseball field as theirs, placed the flag on the mound. During the second week, the counselors, who were actually participants in the experiment, brought the boys together on the baseball field for some competitive games. Everything deteriorated quickly. The eagles burned the rattler's flag. The rattlers retaliated, burned the eagle's flag. That night, the rattlers raided the eagle's cabin, turned over beds, ripped mosquito netting, stole comic books. The eagles fought back while the rattlers ate dinner. Their enemies returned the favor, except for this time they brought sticks and bats and socks filled with stones to use as weapons, and they had to cancel the experiment. What a picture of this human tendency to hate and fear the other. Now, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I think for a lot of my life, I thought that most people had outgrown these primal suspicions and fears, that we were mostly past that. Most of the time, the world works pretty well for me. I don't often feel judged or feared. And most of my friendships were with white men, and they seemed to experience the world like I did. Well, one of the gifts of all souls is new friendships and a more expansive network of friendships. And so over the years, uh, in addition to some great friendships with white men, I've become good friends with several black friends, an Asian woman, uh, several gay men and women, and several professional women. And over the years, we've built trust, and as the trust is built, they've felt free to open up. And without exception, each of these friends has shared numerous painful stories about feeling judged and hated and even treated unjustly as an outsider. Uh, I had four conversations like that in the last two weeks. 
Evidently, ancient primitive tribalism still lives just beneath the surface of our civil society. And I think if you're in my position as, as, a, as a white male, you don't always see it, but it's very much there. And so a book like Ruth is speaking to it. I think too often the religious community is like the medieval rabbis. We see the other through the lens of fear and suspicion. I have a wonderful young lady that I call it a barber. I don't know what you're supposed to. She doesn't like me to call it that. She cuts my hair. And a wonderful lady. And we've gotten real close. And I, she said, I just really want to do something for the poor. And I said, well, you know, there's ways to build relationships on the other side of town. And would you like to talk about that? And there's a, there, there's a ministry that cuts hair for the poor. And there's some neat things going on on the east side. And she, she backed away. And she said, my mom told me never to go to that side of town. And it, she was kind of embarrassed to say it, but she was just being real honest. She was terrified of going past <laughs> Broadway. And I think it's that fear of the other. So stories like Ruth dismantle a worldview that believes that I'm only safe if I'm with people like myself. And just as an aside, you know, one of the ways the church has handled this, I had a whole class on this in seminary. It's called the HU principle. Have we ever talked about this? The homogeneous unit principle. And what it means is people naturally like to be with people like themselves. So if you want to grow a church, build it all with people like the, that are together in the same. And every megachurch in America is built on that principle. Um, it's true. A great way to get around this is just to stay with people who are the same. But see, you, you, I think we really miss something, friends. And I think that's one of the th reasons why we have the book of Ruth in the Bible. God has this vision of a multi-ethnic worshiping community from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's his desire that different kinds of people come together and worship him. Why? Because it looks cool on a, on a picture? No, it's because I can't be fully formed in Christ if I'm only around other middle-class white people. I need the perspective of others to help me be formed in Christ. It's been on my heart for a while. It's one of the things I want to do next year. And so I was talking to my friend Daryl Arnold, the pastor of Overcoming Believers, and about having a Bible study together with three black men and three white men. And uh, I'd never done that before. And honestly, it's kind of embarrassing. The reason why was I was taught in seminary to fear black theology because it's either liberation theology or progressive theology and, and uh, prosperity theology. And uh, it's bad stuff. Stay away. And of course, I've long since worked through that and seen the error of that, seen that I have a lot to learn from black theology. And so about half a year ago, I said, Daryl, what do you want to, you want to do this? And so we've started one, three black guys, three white guys. Daryl leads it. We've been going through the gospel of John and um, we decided to take a retreat. And so we did an overnight retreat and uh, every man took 70 minutes and shared their life story. It was one of the most holy 24 hours of my life. 
to just sit and have a black man honestly tell me what it's like to be black in Knoxville is better than a hundred books on race or theory or something like that. And we had our meeting Friday at lunch and again, we're just like, just talking about things that I just could not believe. And one of the guys has become a good friend, James Forthice, he's, he's out at the Cedar Springs and he just hit me on the way out and he said, this is how change happens. This is how change happens. And what's happening to me is reading scripture with black men is teaching me things I never could have figured out by myself. I think that's part of the message here is we need the other to teach us the fullness of God. And I don't know what that looks like for you. For Doug and Mary, it meant moving. For me, it meant coaching swim teams and Bibles. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I, I want to just poke you just enough to get you to ask, is there some way I should readjust my life so that people who are not like me are in it? And I would go so far as to say, if you have no one other than yourself, someone like you, in your life spiritually forming you, you have a deficient diet. One of the things I'm so excited about the Bible Study Fellowship is it's, it's a very diverse group. Many of the participants are from the east side. It's a wonderful way to get to know some people you might not normally meet. Well, this first lovely chapter ends. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Why was it stirred? Probably because she brought a Moabitess back home. That was scandalous. You, you, no moral person would bring a Moabitess into the village. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, which means beautiful or pleasant. Call me Mara. That means bitterness. I went away full and the Lord's brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord's testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And say, Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So episode one ends with fear and hope. There's all sorts of, well, today we'd call it racial tension in the village, ethnic tension. We're not sure where this is going to go, and the heroine is collapsing. And yet they come back at barley harvest. There's food again. And something is about to happen. Let's pray. Lord, I just, I just pray you'd make it clear 
the small ways you want us to adjust our life so that we might be around people who are different than us. I really think that's part of the way of discipleship. I think it's part of the message of Ruth. So, Lord, could you just kind of keep a conversation going with us about that this week? What's that look like for us? Meet us now at the table, we pray. Amen.